choir, thank you, orchestra. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me once more to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we began a study just a few weeks ago on this issue of spiritual warfare, our need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, and then the armor that has been given to the believer in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes a person who's brand new to Christianity, maybe they're a new believer, uh, maybe they assume that just because they're saved that life will be a breeze from here on out. And that the moment you come to faith in Jesus, all your problems disappear, and there's no more a struggle as far as life is concerned. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that that's not the case. Because to be reconciled to God is also to be antagonized by the enemy. If you're a believer, someone who's come to faith in Jesus, then you need to know that Satan sets his sights upon you. There's a very real target on your back, and so the enemy will launch his attacks upon you because of who you belong to. You belong to Christ. And so that's why life for the Christian involves conflict because there's this unseen, uh, there are these spiritual forces of evil that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, and these are at work in a fallen world all around us. And so it's for that reason that we've got to be vigilant and we really need to understand what this passage of Scripture uh, teaches. So in this text, Paul outlines for us the strategy for spiritual warfare. Uh, He describes both the nature of the conflict that we're in as well as the enemy. He says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But again, there's spiritual evil. And the requirement of all of that We've got to do, as he says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. He repeats that emphasis in verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God. And so this is a passage that's of vital importance uh, for us as Christian men and women because no matter how long you've been a Christian, you've got to be vigilant. This is a battle that is fought on a daily basis because all of the resources that we've been given spiritually If we're not careful, we can sort of set those aside to the point that we forget just what we've been given in Christ. And that's what the enemy would want for us. And so that's why Paul tells the the Ephesian church, he reminds them of all of the vast resources that they have because of their position in Christ. And that's his emphasis uh, here in Ephesians. And so as he closes out his instructions, his letter here, He wants them to understand the nature of this conflict, but he outlines the armor of God that's been supplied to every believer in Jesus. This is armor that's been given to us solely on the basis of God's grace, and you need to know what he's describing here in these verses. So verse 13, if you've got your Bible, we'll begin reading. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day And having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So in these verses, you have the armor of God, which is outlined by the Apostle Paul. And so we, we started last week with the first piece of armor in this set of armor that's described here. The belt of truth is what we considered from verse 14 last week. Well, this morning, I want us to consider the second piece of armor mentioned there in verse 14. And specifically, it's the breastplate of righteousness. You know that effective armor is crucial. It's a vital element in any battle, and this is certainly true when it comes to spiritual warfare. Because the enemy of your soul is looking for some exposed, vulnerable area of, his, of your life whereby he can launch an attack against you. And if we're to stand victorious against that type of assault, then we really need to pay attention to Paul's words here in this passage of Scripture. We've got to put on the whole armor of God. Now again, this metaphor of a soldier that's dressed out, arrayed in the, uh, the, the armor that a soldier of the day would have been arrayed in, this was a very familiar illustration to Paul's first century readers. Living there in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus, they no doubt would have been quite familiar with how a typical Roman soldier would have been decked out in all of his armor. However, there may be more to Paul's emphasis here as he's writing as a Jew who had an understanding of the Old Testament. Now, we know the Bible says that the ultimate battle with Satan and victory in that battle that's already been secured by the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus is prophetically foreshadowed in the Old Testament. There are various pictures that are used throughout the Old Testament to describe the Messiah and his work. And one of those pictures is that of a warrior. Psalm 24 refers to him as the king of battle, the king of glory, mighty in battle. Isaiah chapter 11 describes uh, this Messiah as being a mighty warrior striking the earth with the rod of his mouth. Righteousness is the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. So there you have the, the, the belt of truth there. Isaiah chapter 52, uh, the prophet describes the shoes worn by Messiah. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them which bring good news. And then Isaiah 59, you have the same thing. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. So all of that is really pointing forward to the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus. And so the reason I mentioned this is because it seems that these basic elements of the armor of God that come from Paul's pen, it's not simply that of a Roman soldier. But show how the Lord Jesus, he is the divine warrior who has secured the victory uh, for his people. He's the one who took the devil on, who fought the battle, and we stand confidently in his victory. And that's very important you understand that because if we're not careful, we can approach this passage of Scripture and come to the armor of God and we think, well, Paul's just encouraging us to try harder as Christians so that we can become like Christ and defeat Satan 
on our own. And that's not his emphasis here. Because his emphasis is one of participation, not imitation. Now you need to know that because the Christian gospel is not imitation. It's not that as I imitate Jesus and try to be like Jesus that I'm saved and somehow secure some righteousness and righteous standing on my own with God. That's not the gospel. No, the gospel message is one of participation. Because remember, Paul has emphasized in Ephesians the vital union, which is true of every believer, union with Christ, your position in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that when Christ died, I died with him. And that when he rose again, I'm risen with him. And all of that is symbolized through believer's baptism, the the believer's union with Jesus Christ. And so this passage then is about me standing confidently in the triumph of Christ, which has decisively been won over Satan in the cross and in the resurrection. Jesus is our victorious warrior. Aren't you glad that he faced the devil and that he's defeated sin and death and the grave? And so now I can live confidently in the reality of his accomplishments because that's where real victory is truly found. And so the first piece of armor Paul's mentioned here has to do with truth, the belt of truth. And we've already looked at that and how the belt was such a necessary piece of the soldier's equipment so he could keep his stuff tied down sort of held everything together as far as the soldier's uniform was concerned. And by the way, that's what truth will do in your life as a man or a woman. The enemy wants your life to come unraveled at the seams and he will try to trip you up through lies and deception. But you see, truth is what inoculates us against the devil's lies. Well, closely related to that, you'll notice that the second piece of armor that's mentioned here is what Paul refers to as this breastplate of righteousness. Now again, in Paul's day, soldiers, they wore sort of this looped arrangement of metal sheets and leather uh, in what was known as a lorica segmentata is how it was referred to. It's probably the most protective and recognizable piece of armor of the entire Roman period. It became popular in the first century. So perhaps this is what he's having in mind. Maybe the Ephesians are associating this breastplate of righteousness with that noticeable piece of armor that a soldier would wear. That word breastplate that Paul uses there in verse number 14, it translates the Greek word thorax. That ought to be a familiar term to you if if you can remember your high school anatomy class. You know what the thorax is? The thorax, this is the area of your body uh, from the abdomen to your neck, It's your chest or your chest cavity, the part of your body that contains your vital organs, such as your lungs, your heart. You see, in ancient times, people sort of associated those vital organs, the lungs, the heart, they associated that with a person's affections or their emotions, uh, their thought life, their inner person, and that type of thing. So a soldier's breastplate was intended to protect these areas associated with respiration, that's their lungs, circulation, that's their heart. And so no soldier in his right mind would ever go into battle without his breastplate. I I spoke um, Thursday to our our football teams. 
down here in the fellowship hall and I was talking about the armor of God, go figure. Really convenient, it's what's on my heart and my mind. But I was talking to him and sort of made the comparison between football pads and the armor of God. Now you think about the football uh, uniform, what a football player has to put on. He's got to have cleated shoes. He's got to put his girdle on. (laughs) Uh, Those padded pants. He's got to have that breastplate, those pads, those shoulder pads on. He's got to have a helmet on, right? Now, can you imagine a, a, a quarterback going out to play? Let's say NFL games get kicked off today. Quarterback goes out, and uh, he's beginning to, to take snaps, but he goes out dressed like he's about to run a cross-country marathon. And you got all the rest of those players are fully decked out in their, listen, no quarterback in his right mind would ever go out there unprepared like that. In a similar way, no soldier would ever go into battle without having his breastplate on. Because this is what protected those vital organs. Even if he was able to fight off the enemy in hand-to-hand combat, there still was this risk of some rogue arrow coming from another direction that could hit him in a vulnerable area. And so he would wear that breastplate. And so it's not insignificant then that Paul associates this particular piece of armor with righteousness in the believer's life. And so our emphasis then, it's not so much the breastplate itself, but what this breastplate represents, the breastplate of righteousness. And the root word there, it's to be innocent, holy, just, the state of being righteous. Paul says that righteousness, this is the breastplate that we need as we stand against the enemy and his attacks. And so that brings up a very important question. What is this righteousness? And why is it so very important? Well, there are three considerations that I want to make about this issue of righteousness. First of all, there's the righteousness that's required by the law of God. The righteousness that's required by the law of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 4 refers to the righteous requirement of the law. That simply means that God in his law has revealed his righteous standard. We know that God is righteous. As such, he demands righteousness. And his standard is absolute perfection. So that his law demands that the soul that sins, it shall die. And without righteousness, no one will ever see God. The wages of sin is death. And so here you have the law of God that's been revealed by God. And God's law reveals righteousness It exposes sin in my life and in your life. But the problem is, the law cannot provide me with the righteousness that it reveals. Elsewhere, Paul describes this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died in vain. That is, if I could gain righteous standing with God just by simply obeying the law, then Christ would have died for no purpose. Galatians 3.10, all who rely upon works of the law are under a curse. What was the curse? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, the law is given. There's a curse for those who don't obey it perfectly. There's blessings associated with obedience to the law, but there are curses associated with disobedience to the law. And so you read in Job 25 where one of Job's friends asks this question, how can a man be righteous before God? 
And that's the million dollar question. We know that we're sinners. We know that we've all come short of this glorious standard of God and his law. Perfect holiness. So how can a person be righteous before God? That's the question that philosophy tries to deal with, religion tries to deal with, ethics all attempt to answer this particular question. This is a question that Martin Luther wrestled with. In July of 1505, it was a hot, muggy summer afternoon. Uh, Young Martin Luther was traveling through the German countryside. He had a lucrative career ahead of him uh, being a lawyer. He had just finished his law degree. Well, that afternoon, the skies began to get dark. The wind began to blow. Raindrops began to fall. And suddenly, Luther found himself in the middle of a thunderstorm. And lightning bolts, I mean, they were just dancing all around. And it was something that absolutely scared him to death. And so he, he cried out in desperation. He basically made a deal with God because he was afraid of dying. He said, if you spare me, I'll become a monk. And so true to his word, 15 days later, at the age of 21, Martin Luther uh, entered an Augustinian monastery. Now, that sounds strange to you. You need to understand that it was the prevailing mindset of the Middle Ages. Because the majority of Christians at the beginning of the 16th century, they understood the fact that God has a holy hatred for sin. They understood that God will condemn sinners who die in their sin to an eternity in hell. They understood that the requirement was righteousness. And so in their understanding, in in medieval Catholicism, the best way that you could get righteous was for you to enter a monastery where you could spend the rest of your life in works of piety, prayer, and fasting, denying the flesh, and giving up all of your possessions to the poor. And so that's what Luther did. He entered the monastery to try to save his soul, to seek the righteousness that a holy God required. And so Luther became a monk, and he excelled at being a monk. But you see, there was just this one nagging problem. Because no matter what he did, no matter how hard hard he tried, no matter how many times he went to the confessional booth to try to receive absolution from his sin, he discovered that it was never quite enough. He kept tripping up. No matter how hard he tried, his own sinfulness spoiled the righteousness that he sought to gain. In 1515, he was studying through the book of Romans. And he understood that epistle from beginning to end. And he understood everything but that one phrase, the righteousness of God. And in particular, verse 17, the righteousness of God in the gospel, which is from faith to faith. Luther understood this to be the righteousness that God has within himself, the righteousness that he requires from people. And so Luther began hating that phrase. And so he picked up a commentary from Augustine. And he discovered that it's not the righteousness whereby God himself is righteous that's being described there, but it's the righteousness that God has made available to sinners, the righteousness that he gives as a free gift to all who believe in Jesus. And so the gospel then, it's not that righteousness is given to believers as they do their best. No, it's righteousness which is given by God's grace received through faith. And so Luther understood Romans 1.17 that the righteous does not live before God by means of his own works righteousness, but by his faith. 
And so the righteousness then that God requires is also the righteousness that God provides in the gospel. Now listen, that all absolutely caused you to shout. Because when Luther rediscovers this great truth, by his own admission, he says, I grasp that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and mercy God justifies us through faith. He says, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have passed through open doors into paradise itself. And therein was the burden of his soul lifted because God justifies us by faith because faith lays hold of Christ and it's on the basis of Christ's works, not my works, that I'm justified. And I'm declared to be righteous. The theological term for this is imputed righteousness. That's a legal term, which simply means that as a sinner, you come to God and you place your faith and your trust in Jesus the righteousness of Jesus is then imputed, credited to your account. And so what Paul means by this breastplate of righteousness then, it's not a set of accomplishments that we achieve for ourselves. Because let me tell you something, your righteousness, that's like you wearing a styrofoam plate as a breastplate. It's insufficient. And you can paint it up and you can make it look tough, but at the end of the day, it's flimsy. It's not sufficient. No, you need the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ and his righteousness alone is a sufficient covering. And so that's the righteousness then required by the law of God. Now, a second consideration is this righteousness which is received through faith in Jesus. If righteousness is the requirement of God's law, That is a standard of perfection being the requirement, yet the Bible says that due to sin, there's none righteous, no, not one. This is why the gospel is such good news, because it tells me that I am made righteous by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, so that all of Christ's righteousness is given to the one who comes to him in faith. This is something that the apostle Paul came to understand through his own conversion to faith in Jesus. In fact, if you flip a couple of pages over to Philippians chapter three, look at what Paul has to say about his former life and how in Judaism he just, he tried to achieve righteous standing on his own through his own efforts. He talks about not putting any confidence in the flesh. He says, though I myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. Verse four, Philippians three, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now listen, here's his credentials. As a proud Jewish man, here's what he could have, he could have, he could have tried to wear this as a breastplate of righteousness. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. As far as his own works righteousness goes, he says, man, and when it came to keeping the law, I was meticulous, every jot, every tittle, every command. But now look at verse seven. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, I began looking at all of that thinking that I was earning my own way to heaven, thinking that I was securing righteousness by means of my own effort, my own works. And he says, I came to count that as nothing but rubbish 
and loss. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now look at verse nine. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. He's saying, so I no longer put my confidence in my own accomplishments, but no, I've come to place all of my faith and all of my trust in Jesus, and I've received the righteousness of Jesus as the gift of God received through faith. One person has said it this way, at the heart of the Christian gospel, there are two equal and opposite transformations. Each is dramatic. Each would be unbelievable if we didn't have God's word on it. And they are these, that God took Jesus, the only perfect person who ever lived, the only one who could ever stand before God on the basis of his own goodness, and stripped off from Jesus these clean clothes of faithful obedience. The Father tore off Jesus' righteous standing before him and treated him as if he were the guilty one. He made Jesus to be blackened with our sin, our iniquity, our transgression, so that on the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty for all of those sins against God's holiness. And then, equally remarkable, having treated the innocent one as guilty, God treats the guilty ones as innocent. That's what it means when 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that it was for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's imputed righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.19, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. And so instead of God counting my trespasses and sins against me, here's what it means for me to be in Christ. All of that was charged to Christ's account. Jesus paid it all on the cross. Thank God Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. But not only, not only does my sin get credited to Christ on the cross, but now the righteousness and the holiness and the faithfulness of Jesus gets credited to my account. That's what God deposits into my account. Which means that now as a believer, here's what this means for you to be in Christ, that when God looks upon your life, he sees the righteousness of his own son. Now listen, you won't hear any better news than that. Righteousness is a gift that's given to the man or the woman who has faith in Jesus. You can't stand before God on the basis of your own merits. We don't have anything with which we can commend ourselves to God. No, the gospel tells me that the righteousness that God requires is also the righteousness that God gives solely on the merit of his own son. That's why Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. <laughs> Praise God. And so truly, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And that's the truth. There's no other ground upon which a person can stand before God but Christ alone. All other ground is sinking sand, whether that be the ground of secular ideas, ideas and lies that the enemies introduced to the world of humanity, wanting us to ignore these realities, to despise the law of God and the righteous requirement of the law. Do you think God just set his law aside and says, I just forgive you? No, he fulfills the law's demands through the death of Jesus in your place. And so even the, even the, the ground of my own moral performance, if that's what I'm relying upon to get me to heaven, that's nothing but sinking sand. If popular approval with other people, if, if hearing people talk about how good a person I am, if that's what I'm banking upon to give me standing with God, that's nothing but sinking sand. The only solid ground, folks, is the righteousness of Jesus. So there's the righteous requirement of the law. There's the righteousness which is received through faith in Jesus. And then the third consideration is this. What about the righteousness which is to be reflected in our daily walk as Christian men and women? From a positional standpoint, when I came to faith in Jesus... The Bible says that I was justified. Justification, that refers to the righteousness of Jesus being imputed to me, to my account. That's a legal term. That's my position. My performance, it's not based upon my performance, no. And yet, there's also this issue of imparted righteousness. If imputed righteousness deals with justification, that's my legal standing, that's now changed as someone who has faith in Jesus, all of the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to my account, then imparted righteousness, this is the practical outworking of Christ's righteousness in my own life as a Christian man. So it's talking about what righteousness looks like practically. Notice Paul's emphasis here, going back to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm to put on this breastplate of righteousness. Now, positionally, that means I've already been given the full righteousness of Jesus, imputed. That can't change. The devil can't do anything about that, and it drives him crazy. That's justification. But you see, imparted righteousness, this has to do now with my sanctification as a believer and the way that I'm living my life practically. Now, come back to the metaphor here. You know that in the first century world, again, that breastplate covered all of those vital organs, the lungs, the heart. In battle, the enemy's arrows would be flying around. So it was so important that this soldier be decked out in his armor, not the least of which involved his breastplate, because again, it protected his lungs, protected his heart, Physically, my lungs, this is how I breathe in and breathe out. If my lungs are punctured, I will suffer. If the air that I breathe in, if it's polluted, my body will eventually suffer. That's true physically, but now think about this. In a spiritual sense, the breastplate of righteousness protects me from the poisonous arrows of the enemy and the world around me, which come in the form of lies and accusations. 
That's why you need to get up in the morning as a believer and spend time with God and you need to intentionally put that breastplate on, practically speaking. Because I can guarantee you that at some point throughout the course of the day, the enemy's going to try to launch those flaming arrows your way in the form of lies to try to trip you up, to hinder your sanctification. He can't do anything about your justification. That issue's settled. But he wants to attack me in my spirit. He wants to trip me up. He wants to confuse me. And he'll introduce all kinds of lies to try to do that. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. So when I know that I possess the righteousness of Jesus, well then and only then can I withstand the enemy's accusations. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 2, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So, so notice there, to be born of God's spirit, having been declared righteous, now means that God is working that righteousness out in your life, each and every day of your life. It's to say that the seed of new life, this has been planted within me as a believer, and the life of God is now present within, and I'm, I now reflect that practically through the way that I live. I'm growing, and I'm developing. That's what the Bible means in other places where we're instructed to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So we might very well say that imputed righteousness, this transfers Christ's status before God to us. That's my position. But imparted righteousness, this transfers Christ's character to us. So that through this process of sanctification, which is ongoing in your life as a believer, it's going to happen until the day you die. God is molding you and shaping you and making you more and more and more like the Lord Jesus. Which means he'll use circumstances in your life that oftentimes are very painful. He'll use the word of God, which is why as a believer, part of putting on the breastplate of righteousness means that you need to regularly spend time in God's word. It means that you need to regularly participate in weekly rhythms of sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word. Whether in this setting or in a small group setting, take advantage of every opportunity that you get as a child of God to do that because God is using his word to conform you, to shape you more and more into the image of Jesus. He'll use other people in your life. You got Christian men and women in your life that you look up to. Maybe you've come along, maybe some of you, that those people are already with Jesus in heaven, but they were so important in your life and the formation of your spiritual growth as a believer in Christ. And you thank God for them. So that's the difference then between justification and sanctification, both of which are a part of our salvation. Justification deals with my position that's settled, thank God sanctification, this is the righteousness of Jesus now that's being worked out practically in my life. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and do of his own good pleasure. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It's saying work it out. Practically, as you live your life, every day, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so let me just close by giving you just a few practicalities of why this is so very important. Practicality number one, when I put on the breastplate of righteousness each and every day as a child of God, it gives me a true sense of confidence. And that's something that's always essential with this issue of spiritual warfare. Because we need confidence in order to stand as soldiers. And when I understand my position as a child of God who is justified, that is, I'm declared to be righteous, while at the same time I'm also being sanctified, that is, practically I'm being made righteous, that means that I can now live confidently because God's at work in my life. I know that I'm forgiven. So when the enemy comes along and tries to lie and reminds me of what I said yesterday and the way I acted, and he says, you know, if you were really a child of God, you wouldn't have said that. You wouldn't have acted that way. When you pull up to the intersection and, well, y'all been there. See what I'm saying? The enemy wants to accuse you and just constantly beat you down as a child of God so that he can rob you of the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. Understanding this breastplate of righteousness will give me a true sense of confidence. And then secondly, a second practicality, it protects me in the realm of my emotions. Because when I'm confronted with the fact of my sin, I can easily find myself weighed down with guilt and even spiritual depression. That's why Satan, he's the accuser of the brethren who constantly reminds me of my faults and my failures, reminding me that I'm utterly unworthy to stand in God's presence. But you see, he doesn't tell the full truth. He's a liar. The full truth is that someone who's trusting in Jesus, my sin has been forgiven and my standing is secure. And so that keeps me from emotional imbalance in my own life. A third practicality is that this breastplate of righteousness keeps me from certain extremes. The devil's a master manipulator who wants to push us to extremes. And this breastplate of righteousness serves really as the proper and balanced motivation when it comes to service. Now think about this. You're a Christian. One extreme is for you to live with such a spiritual depression that you don't see you're fit to serve God in any capacity. And so you won't give. And you won't serve whenever there's an opportunity to serve. And the underlying motivation behind that may be because you just don't feel adequate. That's an extreme. What you need to do is put the breastplate of righteousness on and remember who you are in Jesus. The other extreme is that you serve and you serve and you serve and you burn the candle at both ends and you spread yourself thin and you work yourself to death because you're trying to prove your worth in some capacity. Well, I've got to convince people of my worth and my value. I've got to convince God that I'm a valuable person. That's an extreme because the breastplate of righteousness reminds me that I've already won the victory in Jesus Christ and that my standing before God, I'm standing on the basis of Christ's accomplishments and not my own. And so no longer does it have to be about me, but it's all about him. 
And then one final practicality, and I'm through with this. The breastplate of righteousness provides us with a powerful witness to a watching world. It's an evangelistic witness when God's people take seriously this issue of putting on the breastplate of righteousness day in and day out. You take this issue of deconstruction. That's something you hear talked about a lot now. People deconstructing, some walking away from a faith that they formerly professed. Far too many people are deconstructing from the wrong things. Let's just be honest, there are some folks who've recognized that there have been some ugly and hypocritical things done in the name of faith, and so they conclude that Christianity is to be blamed for that. And so they throw out the baby with the bathwater. When we don't put on the breastplate of righteousness of God's people, as God's people, if we're not careful, we can put a bad taste in the mouth of the world around us, and I don't want to do that in terms of my witness. I want to be full of the Holy Spirit. I want to be full of the love of God, and I want to speak the truth in love. That's why I've got to put on this breastplate of righteousness each and every day of my life so that others see Jesus in me. So I want to ask you the question. When you got up this morning, did you put on your armor? In the morning, God privileges you to see another day. Will you put on your armor? I pray that you will. Let's stand as we pray this morning. Can you say with confidence that Christ is your righteousness? Maybe you say, Pastor, I'm just not sure that I've ever truly come to faith in Jesus. Maybe you're here for the very first time. Maybe you've been exploring the claims of Jesus and Christianity and all of this just sounds so brand new to you. If that's you, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. And it's not by accident, but it's by divine design. The good news of the gospel is that sinners are declared to be righteous through faith in Jesus alone. The Son of God who is perfect in every way obeyed the law of God and fulfilled its demands, went to the cross, and there at Calvary, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's this wonderful exchange that can take place in your life right now. As you turn away from yourself and you quit relying upon your own religion and you quit relying upon your own efforts and your own good deeds, but recognize that even on your very best day, your righteousness is like a filthy rag. It won't cut the mustard on judgment day. The only thing that will matter is whether or not you've been dressed in the righteous garments of Christ. Receive his righteousness as a gift through simple faith. I want to pray in just a moment. We're going to sing. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you after the service is over. We'll have some pastors available even here, perhaps, uh, you can come pray with. After the service is over, I'll be out in the lobby. Would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, why baptism is so important. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, in Jesus' name, I'm so thankful for the wonderful truth of the gospel that the righteousness, Lord, which you require is the righteousness which you provide in Jesus Christ. 
thank you for the wonderful doctrine of justification. That we're justified, not on the basis of our moral performance, but through faith in Jesus alone. And Lord, for those who've come to believe the gospel, having been justified, we're also being sanctified. That is, this righteousness of Christ is being practically outworked in our life as we're growing and maturing. And Lord, that means we're going to fail, we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to trip up the enemy. He's going to deceive us, and oftentimes we're going to buy into some of his lies. But Lord, that's why this breastplate of righteousness is so important. May we put it on. May you guard us against his accusations and against his scheming tactics. Thank you for the confidence that the gospel brings. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.